Welcome to Giant Size Violence, a Toku Comics podcast. I'm your host, Tommy, and today I'm joined by yet another newcomer to the world of writing comics. He's worked as an assistant director on dozens of films and TV series, including Titans, V-Wars, and Odd Squad. He's the co-writer of the upcoming Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, The Return, along with his writing and romantic partner, Amy Jo Johnson, who many of you may know as the original Pink Ranger. The book just finished a successful Kickstarter campaign, and the single issues will be hitting comic shelves in February 2024. Here to discuss his first foray into comics and his history with the Power Rangers franchise is series co-creator Matt Hodson. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that warm welcome. Yeah, no problem at all. How have things been like coming up just the first few days after the Kickstarter and coming up on release? Literally, while you were doing that intro, uh, our editor Daphna just sent us notes on issue four, and there's a lot of them. So that's how things are going. Uh, oh, I have wow. some homework to get to as soon as we're done this. Gotcha. So uh, am I maybe mistaken that on the release date of a uh, trade coming in December? I think you were mistaken. That's December 2024. So it's about a year oh. away. So issue one is in <laughs> comic shops on February 7th. And then it's monthly for four months. And then the trades and all the Kickstarter stuff will be out by the end of next year. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And- so this is your first time like working with a comic editor or writing anything in the field of comics, right? I mean, I've been patiently waiting my whole life for this. And now that it's here, it's the best experience ever. But it is the first time. Like you said, I've worked on some big comic-related shows like Titans. Uh, I did a brief stint on V-Wars as well. Uh, but this is my first real comic book. As far as like familiarizing yourself with the medium or jumping from like TV scripts to comic scripts, uh, I'm curious if there was anything you were pulling direct influence from or like anything that was kind of your model for like, okay, this is how I want to structure our comic. Okay, I mean, first thing is, yeah, it's it's tricky. It can be tricky for people who are familiar with movie and TV scripts because those are scripts that are designed to play in motion. And you have to be very aware when you switch to comic books that you have physical medium that you're dealing with. You literally have the confines and restrictions and the benefits of a page and what that allows you. And it's really important, obviously, to remember you have one action per page so that you're not writing a whole bunch of stuff on one panel that actually needs to be 17 different panels. Um, But that said, there's a lot of great stuff um, that I have been reading over the course of my life, like I said, patiently, secretly waiting for this opportunity. So I don't think it was a hard transition for me. And Amy Jo took to it really well as as well. She's a great feature screenwriter. Uh, She has The Space Between, which she wrote and directed herself a few years ago. She didn't write her last feature or obviously her episode of Superman, but she's written other scripts, including a script that's on the blacklist. So she has done a lot of stuff, even a lot of stuff people haven't seen before. So switching into comic books, I think because I've read a lot more than her, I was more prepared to guide her into like the one panel thing and the pages and your page turns and when to do a splash page and stuff. But once we had done the first issue, she was just as ready to to dive in and really embrace the comic booky stuff. Uh, that she had never expected to be getting into. Uh, there's, um, without spoiling anything, I'll be saying that a lot during this mm. podcast. Without spoiling anything, there's, uh, I think it's page three, four and five of issue two is all Amy Joe. And it's all Amy Joe's being like, what can we do that you can only do in a comic book that I wouldn't be able to do in a movie? And it's this idea that I admit I was stubborn. I was like, I don't know how this is going to work. And we haven't seen it drawn yet. But once we really 
figured it out. It's an incredible example of what you can do in comic books that you can't do in movies and TV. And once Amy Jo started seeing stuff like that, I think she was all in just like I was about making a comic book and making it be distinctly a comic book and not just a live action script turned into a comic book. Mm. So how did this project come about then, or like this opportunity to make that leap finally into comics? Uh, I put all of the credit or blame onto her. <laughs> he was actually thinking of, um, so Hasbro, which owns Power Rangers, mm. they used to have a company, they just divested themselves of E1, which makes movies and TV shows. And it, Amy Jo was thinking a few years ago, well, like, is there something there? Hasbro owns Power Rangers. I make movies. E1 makes movies. Hasbro owns E1. Is there something there that I could do? Power Rangers E. And I won't spoil. She had an interesting idea and she asked for help brainstorming. And she was like, well, where would, where would Kimberly Hart go after the Power Rangers? And she came up with some cool ideas and I came up with some ideas I was going to share with her. And I had this one idea and she was like, well, I think Kimberly would do this and it would be this. And I was like, oh, that's super cool. But you, that's like, she'd be like 23, 24, 25. She's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I mean, Joe, I thought you meant like, where would Kimberly Hart be now? And she's like, well, what does that mean? And we kind of fell down the rabbit hole. No, like this is 2000 and whatever. Where would they be if they aged in real time? Where would those characters be? And that's not what she was thinking about for the sort of mm. TV show movie idea. And we came up with this really interesting idea of, well, what would this be? And then by the time we finished brainstorming together, we had a live action project that would probably cost about $200 million <laughs> and also be, be impossible to actually make. And Amy Jo, who had a big stack of the boom Power Rangers comic books in her basement, when I met her, it was just like, oh, we should just do that as a, as a comic book. That. And he just said it as like a throwaway. This is a cool idea, but clearly we're not going to follow this avenue because we're coming up with ideas for movie shows and movies. And she had a really good one. And she said, just as a throwaway line, this, you should turn this into a comic book. And I remember going home and thinking about that all night. And they're like, well, yeah, it should be a comic book. It should be a comic book. This is an amazing idea. Amy Jo Johnson writing a Power Rangers comic book. Why would anybody want to do that? Everyone want to read it. We should do this. We should do this. And so I went to her place the next day. I was like, I've been thinking about what you said about it being a comic book. And she's like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, it should be. It should be. Think about how incredible that would be if you wrote a Power Rangers comic book, a legacy project, a reunion, and aged them in real time. They've never done anything like that. No one's ever seen anything like that before. And so that became almost by the time the first issue comes out, four years of work to get to the part of the issue coming out from the initial conversation. But Anytime I was driving her crazy with this, it's, I blame her for it. Uh, but it was all Amy Joe's idea to make this a comic book. And it was a lot more work than we thought, not in a bad way. It took way longer than we thought. Uh, and like I said, I've driven her crazy a bunch of times. But when she said those words, this should just be a comic book, I really lashed onto them and I dragged her kicking and screaming into a world that I myself knew nothing about mm. other than being a fan. So I noticed it's a four-issue series, which like I know it's often traditional in comics do like the six issue miniseries or arc or the 12 issue maxi series does the four issue structure kind of stem from its origins as a film or like the four act structure or how did it come about as a four issue series it's a little bit of both when we were looking through and researching what to do and how long to make it uh the idea of it sort of i mean we never really had actually started writing anything when we were thinking about it as a tv show or movie but if you look at like a 90 to 120 page script, which would be a 90 to 120 page movie. And then if you look at what Boom has typically done in the past, by looking at all those comic books that she did have from Boom, from the Power Rangers stuff, they were doing a lot of four issue things. And uh, Kyle Higgins with uh, Jason David Frank uh, as a special consultant had done the, I want to say it's Enter the Dragon, it's probably not Enter the Soul Dragon. of the Dragon, I think. Soul of the Dragon, thank you. They had done that and that was sort of about the same sort of 88 page-ish thing. 
So that's what we sort of earmarked. And then once conversations with Boom started happening, they sort of said that as well. They said four issues is sort of like the length we like to do. And I also think for us too, we didn't want to bite off more than we could chew, having not worked in this medium before. And the way that the story just sort of unfolded as we were writing, four issues ended up being the perfect amount. Mm. I think that's probably like the right way, especially for newer comic writers. Like as I've been digging into people's runs or early runs, uh, I find the six issue arcs, like especially for people who haven't been writing for the trades for years, we often get series where what is happening and at the end of issue four, the beginning of issue five is like where issue two should have been just as far as like movement not happening. But I mean, if this book is anything like the seven pages in the preview we got in the 30th anniversary, I can tell that like this is going to be good and fast paced and like moving in a good clip. I mean, that's the great thing, too, is especially as someone who works as an assistant director, and we get a lot of scripts, you see a lot of scripts, I break down a lot of scripts on the side of shows that I don't even work on. And with streaming, things have definitely gotten a little bit longer than they used to be because you're not Mm -hmm. confined by 44 minutes or 22 minutes on a TV show anymore. Uh, But less can really be more. Like you said, trim the fat and just sort of get the story told in the least amount of pages possible. And hopefully we leave the readers wanting more. Now, as for like having all these ideas to pull from and like seeing where these characters grow, uh, I'd really like to know more about your history with the franchise. Like if you grew up on Power Rangers or if it was like if that was kind of after your time or how you relate to the series. Well, I'm an 80s kid, so more than Power Rangers, my guys have always been the Ninja Turtles. Mm. Like I was saying, I know your, your listeners can't see, but I've got that really sweet Jim Loss and Ninja Turtles art on my wall. So mm. Ninja Turtles are my guys. I have a younger brother who's four years younger than me. He was a lot more into Power Rangers a few years after that. But growing up in the early 90s with only one TV and no cable, Power Rangers was on every single morning in our house. (laughs) Probably, I want to say the first year that it was out, like every day, I want to say 7.30 in the morning on global TV here in Canada, it was on and you could sort of time your morning to like when the Megazord would hit the screen and when the heavy metal guitar licks (laughs) come out and you knew exactly how much time you left to eat breakfast and when it was time to go to school. And I remember my brother loved the Black Ranger, Zach, because I have this for him because we met Walter up at Rhode Island mm-hmm. Comic Con a few weeks ago and he gave this to Amy Joe and I stole that. And I said, the next time I see my brother, I will give him that because I remember he was a big Black Ranger fan. That's a little fun co pop. I have to say, I think Walter is no offense to Amy, but he's like the most fun ranger cast member i usually see at cons like i'll see him just like break dancing with other dancing cosplayers or i remember being 19 and being in line and the little communicator beep goes off on my phone he starts talking into his watch and that was the coolest thing that had ever happened to me up until that point so i, I love I, seeing walter at a con i only ever met him that weekend but his energy was incredible and he kept it up all weekend long i don't think he disappointed a single fan he had the music going, he was dancing to the beat, he was getting the crowd riled up. He was pretty good at that stuff. Now, I know you've mentioned this stack of comics at Amy's place, and I'm curious if you've been someone that's been following these comics before you've like found yourself in this role, or if it's been more of a research project to get yourself ready to write a Power Rangers arc. Well, I am a massive comic book fan uh, because I had so much time off this year because of the actors and writers' strikes. For my film job, uh, I took the time to alphabetize my whole collection, which I immediately regretted right after I started doing it. And I ended up around 12,000. And since that summer, there's definitely a few hundred more. I might have a problem. I mean, Joe would say I have a problem. Mm. That said, I didn't have a lot of Power Rangers comic books. I think I had just issue one. Try issue one of anything. 
Uh, and Power Rangers is one of those ones that maybe I should be ashamed to admit at this point is that, you know, like Ninja Turtles, I never grew out of. Spider-Man was my guy. I never grew out of him. Power Rangers to me was sort of like Masters of the Universe and a few other things that just uh, Ghostbusters and Transformers are ones too that just grow up and move away from a little bit. Um, I admit when it comes to, to my history with Power Rangers, I didn't know for the longest time that it was even still going. And that's incredible. There's even Ninja Turtles with the various cartoons and stuff. Like they come and they go and there's new versions and new volumes. I think it was when the movie came out, the 2017 movie, mm -hmm. that IGN.com had like a, almost like a slideshow of like, here's every single season of Power Rangers ever leading up to right now. And I had no idea it was still going. And that is incredible because there's no way there's anything else like that. That is a live action show that was initially aimed at children that was able to continue for 30 years, stay fresh while still maintaining the overall character structure and story structure and keep going and going and going all the way up until 2023 is, is insane. That's so good. So I fell out of it for the longest time. Um, I read the first issue of the comic book, which is great, but I didn't fall into the comic books until I met Amy Joe. And I'm ashamed to say that when I met Amy Joe, uh, she just had them all just sitting loose, no bags or no boards. Ooh, and as a comic mm -hmm. book fan, exactly. That's painful. Okay. <laughs> In the, in the basement, now, it's, not, it's a nice finished basement. They were just sitting there in a pile and it broke my heart. So I went out and got a whole bunch of bags and boards and I sat there one day just putting everything in order and bagging and boarding and sealing everything. And then when this came up as a possibility, I'd read a couple of them that she had had. I went and I read probably not every single one, but almost every single one, like every issue that Kyle wrote, every issue that Ryan Parrott wrote. I did a huge, massive deep dive just to see what else was out there and what wasn't out there and what, what we could tackle. Hmm. As for your 12,000 count of comics, uh, I'd be curious to hear like what titles you're still following or what you make a point to keep up with or just like what mostly takes up space in that collection. I'd say mostly Spider-Man just because it's been running for so long. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I will, I'll try anything. I love reading everything. Uh, this year, my list has been deplorably uh, mainstream, like really badly mainstream. I don't think there's anything wrong with that because if you look on Twitter, which is something that I'm new to, the comic book industry is dying and Marvel and DC aren't making anything good. And I disagree with that because I think Amazing Spider-Man, uh, currently written by Zeb Walls, is fantastic. Batman by Chip Zdarsky mm. is the best it's been in years. I love that. And then I made this list, which is what I'm looking at. Catwoman. So I started reading Catwoman by Timmy Howard because Nico Leon, the artist on The Return, was illustrating Catwoman. Catwoman's fantastic. Um, Nightwing has been fantastic since Ooh, Tom yeah, Taylor took over. Yeah, I'm loving Taylor's run on that. That's yeah. peak Nightwing. And um, Bruno Redondo, his artist, is amazing. Um, and World's Finest by Mark Wade and Dan Mora. Mm -hmm. Rib Ribbon Queen by Garth Ennis. And then I also really love uh, Local Man. Local Man is a, a great book that really pays homage to the original image run of books. And I admit, even though I was probably the right age, the image run of books, the initial wave, other than Spawn, which was cool, like very 90s cool, I wasn't really into the image stuff. Local Man makes me regret that because it pays homage to it so well. Not only do I love Local Man, it's made me go back and re re read for the first time a lot of the first image things, which are a lot better than they get credit for. Yeah, I'm noticing there's kind of a good resurgence of like nostalgia for those or, like reinventions because uh, crossover by uh, Donny Cates from about two, three years ago, that also like made me feel something for image characters I was hardly aware of before that point. And I'm glad to see that generation that grew up on the like wildcats and young bloods and all that now like writing and finding if not like fun things to do with pastiches of those like at least finding ways to make people appreciate those after the comics industry has kind of moved on from that style of book 
Yeah, I agree. There's so much good stuff that they can keep mining that everyone has sort of largely ignored or forgotten about. You were the one on Twitter who you recommended, was it Thunder and Lightning? Uh, yeah, Thunder and Lightning. So tell me about that. Uh, so it's just about like an 80-page graphic novel from Silver Sprocket from uh, Kim Wong and their first graphic novel release like this. But like, it's amazing that it crams like almost an entire anime's worth of ideas in just 80 pages Kind of like a magical girl Sailor Moon style story in a post-apocalypse, uh, like these androids built by warring corporation slash governments uh, are just like being televised fighting week after week. And like their goal is to kill each other, but they're never really allowed to kill each other because like that entertainment is industry and profit for both. And then it's an exploration of what happens when one of those wins and kind of brings in something like the end of the world because this android is now just trying to figure out what to do with its life and that may or may not involve killing everyone in search of a, another opponent sounds incredible i need more recommendations like that thank not that i need to read more comic books clearly yeah. but as you heard of my favorite list of 2023 i have so much mainstream marvel and dc stuff so for the listeners reach out to us mm. when they hear this episode and recommend some stuff to me on twitter because I want to check out more. I need to get more, a broader spectrum of what's out there right now. Yeah, really, like, with a lot of images comics, too. Like, I mean, Saga, I'll sing the praises of all day. I was an Invincible fangirl, like, well before I got the TV show. Like, And Boom Studios also has a lot of good, like, accessible titles. So, really, I'd say just find your genre in either of those and, like, expand past superheroes, and it's hard to go wrong. Yeah, no kidding. It's um, but speaking of superheroes, while we are, is you? I think you mentioned on Twitter too, the Massiverse stuff, mm. which is Pelicans, Melissa Flores, Ryan Parrott, Matt Groom. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. Their stuff is incredible, and what they do, which I was texting with Kyle recently about, and Robert Kirkman as well, and Local Man is. I'm a big fan of comics that really embrace the comic bookiness of it, and sometimes very rarely, but sometimes you can sort of smell some smaller books, non-mainstream books that maybe are people that are really hoping that their property gets picked up and becomes maybe the next Walking Dead or the next Invincible. And don't necessarily need to be comics, but like with um, Radiant Black by Kyle Higgins, how he's done the voting for the main character of who Radiant Black will be, splitting the book into two different versions of the same issue. Ryan Parrott last year on Rogue Sun did. Remember the Choose Your Own Adventure? Yeah, the Choose Your Adventure book was crazy. Like I saw them right before that launched at C2E2 and... Yeah, I was blown away and so excited about the massive verse coming out of that event. That's super cool. And then I saw Ryan at LA Comic Con a few weeks ago, and he has an issue, which obviously I won't spoil, but he has something else. Very, very cool, uniquely comic booky coming up in an issue of Rogue Sun that everybody mm-hmm. should be watching out for. And Robert Kirkman as well. I got to give him credit for surprise launching the new Transformers G.I. Joe Energon universe in a totally different comic book or launching Fireproof as a graphic novel that goes immediately into an ongoing series. Or even years ago, if you remember when he did The Walking Dead, he fake solicited fake issues so that nobody knew the last issue yeah. was coming out. Incredible. Just playing with the medium and release and audience engagement and reaction and anticipation. Stuff like that is something that I think not enough people are doing in comic books. And more people are. Because like I said, I'm new to Twitter, but for the last couple of weeks, all Twitter is is about how Comic books are failing and the industry is collapsing. And I feel like people have been having this conversation for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's nothing new. It's the same conversation with new subtopics we should be investigating. But 
the more people are out there embracing comic books for what they are and what they can be and what they do that the other mediums of entertainment and forms of entertainment don't do, the better off comics will be in general. Yeah, and I'd agree. And I feel like this recent discourse is really trying to place blame on like one specific factor. Some are trying to blame writers, others are trying to blame local comic shops. And I think it's all just a sign of like, this industry is changing more than it's dying. Like more people are reading comics than ever before now, but it's just through a lot of like webtoon and manga. And like, I think everyone needs to change to adapt with it. And we're facing these growing pains, but like, I am seeing that growth. Like DC has a surprisingly good presence on webtoon. Marvel Unlimited is kind of using that same scrolling style, adapting to like the phone medium. And I think that like we're starting to get a better understanding of like how to get more people into physical comics. So like for those that want to stick with the way comics were in the 90s, yeah, you're probably going to have a hard time. But for those that are willing to embrace newer audiences and newer, like just newer things in comics, like there's still plenty of customers out there. You just need to like make sure that you've established yourself as a welcoming environment that new people want to wander into. You've said it better than about 99% of the people that I've seen online talking about it. And it, it <laughs> can be you. summed up like that. It's, it's not dying. It's just changing. And we just don't know what that change will result in yet. But there's people like you and me out there that love comic books and, and will love them until we die. I'm sure we'll find a way to keep being inventive and keep telling good stories. And as long as there's good stories and good comics, people will keep reading them. Now, I would like to touch on, like, you're not only doing your first foray into writing comics but you're also approaching this as a creative team with amy and since i know you've been working on this idea together since the early days i'd like to know how that's like taken shape as the writing process starts and like how does your creative process work off each other what's it like actually putting your ideas and words to a script uh great question i thought we were going to keep it a secret but uh, amy joe has not kept it a secret in the last couple of weeks of talking about it is that it was very hard because as you said, we are also romantically involved. And so it was tricky. And it's the book is so much better because it's us together and it's us co-writing. But it, it took a long time for us to figure out how to do that. Not just because it was a new medium for us and a new format, but also because it's, I mean, I, if I brought anything to the table, it would just be the lifelong passion for comic books. And, and like I said, secretly preparing for this my whole life and knowing how they're sort of written and formatted and structured. And then, I mean, obviously with Amy Jo, she's got the life experience of being on the show and portraying the character and everything that's come after that because of that. So we came at it from very different experiences and viewpoints, but also had the same story we wanted to tell, which is ultimately the most important thing. And when you do movies and TV shows, when it's script writing time and even shooting time, it's the best idea wins. And that was our motto going into this. What helped a lot is um, even though we have very different creative processes, because I found that once we actually had something written down, we could focus our energies onto that, which maybe sounds weird because it's a non, it's it's a non-physical thing. But just having a screen that we could look at with words on the screen, uh, if there was a debate about something, it could be at the script instead of with each other. But Amy Jo loves if she's br- stumped about something, she'll go for like an hour-long walk or even a jog and come back and, and know exactly what she wants to write and like gets on the computer and just typing away like like a mad lady. And for me. Uh, I hate exercise and I never want to leave the house. And so I don't want to go for a jog. That sounds like a nightmare. Um, She gets up at 5.30 in the morning and writes for four hours straight. I get up. I don't want to say when I get up because it's embarrassing, but I'll go to bed at three in the morning because I'll start writing at like 11 p.m. 
and I'll do that for four hours straight. Uh, so very different clocks and very different viewpoints. We tried writing on two computers in the same house, in the same room, on the same computer, which I don't recommend at all ever. Um, we went to an office and tried writing there. And ultimately, like I said, it took us a while to find that once we had something written down on a screen that we could look at, it's just instead of directing the energy at each other, it could be directed into the document. And we could pass that back and forth. And that sort of solved everything. And, and we go back and forth. But like I said, it's it's impossible to look at this and be like, well, that's my idea and that's her idea. Or like this is from me and that's from her. I did this page, she did this page, or this scene and that scene. It's really, it's such a melding of the two of our brains. It's incredible. It took a long time to get there, but we cracked it. And uh, and I think if it was just her writing or just me writing, not that I would have ever had the opportunity without her, it, we've really challenged each other to come up with the best writing and the best story that we could which wouldn't have happened separately at all. That's advice I think a lot of people will need. Like I've, I, a lot of my projects are collaborative and I mean, I'm dating a writer right now and it's very likely we'll collaborate on something someday. So that specific advice of getting it into a document and directing energy and feedback at that, uh, I'm going to make sure to hang on to that. And I hope other collaborators listening to this can get that as well. Cause like, I know finding that process is such a challenging period in, the creative process. And it's, um, I met um, Shelley Bond, who is an editor and a writer and wrote the amazing book, Filth and Grammar, which is the only book about comic book editing that I could find out there. And she works with her husband, Philip Bond, who's a comic book artist. And I asked her the same thing, which is like, how, how do you make it work? How do the two of you do your personal stuff and your business stuff? And there's no way that they don't leak into each other. And, you know, she said, there's no one right answer for everybody. Because every couple is different, every story is different, every work relationship is different. But ultimately, if you recognize that the two of you bring out the best in each other, then everything will be fine. You'll get stubborn and you'll have arguments and stuff, but the book will be the best that the book can be. And if you have a healthy relationship, it won't affect the relationship side of things either. So how did you and Amy meet in the first place? Like, was it a while before this comic? And was it through like your various TV work? It was about five and a half years ago. It was through a movie. She was putting together the movie Tammy's Always Die, which she directed. Mm. And I was up north in Canada working on a TV show that I'd been really, really excited about. It shall remain nameless, but it was really, really difficult. Didn't have a great time. And it was I was feeling a little crestfallen. I work as an assistant director, a first assistant director. And I was coming back down to Toronto. And I had heard about this movie. And I wasn't sure. I just didn't feel good about movies and TV shows in general. I just come off this project, which was really hard. I was questioning if I still wanted to do this. And Amy Joe's movie was admittedly much, much smaller than the project I'd been working on. And they were going to be shooting around Toronto and Hamilton. And But I knew it was going to be like Hamilton every day. So it's an hour in the car each way every day. It's going to be in the winter. It's going to be cold. It's It just pays less in general. And so I went to meet with Amy Joe and her producer. And we sat down and just, it was impossible not to fall in love with the idea of making a movie with her and her producer, Jessica, because they just have such a passion for making movies. It was Amy Jo's, at that time, was going to be her second movie. And they're just so excited about making movies. And it's what I'd been missing on the last couple of projects I had worked on. So I went to go work on that movie with them and had one of the best professional onset experiences I've ever had in my life. We had eight hours a day to shoot instead of 12 or 13, which is normal. Like I said, it was in Hamilton, which is an hour away from where I live. It was cold every day. There was not a lot of money, but it was fantastic because so we surrounded ourselves with the right people. And that's really the key of it when it comes to making any piece of art it is not the budget or the timeline, or it's just, it's the people that you're working with. 
so that's how we met. And and when you work on movies, a lot of the times you really hit it off with a bunch of people. Like, well, this is cool. We should keep hanging out. And then you never see them ever again, or you see them like eight years later on another movie. Like, hey, remember we did that thing eight years ago? And when we were done the movie, Amy and Joe and I just decided we definitely wanted to keep hanging out. And I'm like, what usually happens is we did. And, and that's five and a half years later right now. Congrats. And glad to Thanks. hear it was over that shared love of filmmaking that you were able mm-hmm. to meet. Yeah. Now, as far as channeling that into a new love of comics, uh, I'd love to know how like this first published project came about with the uh, the preview slash short story that appears in the 30th anniversary issue. So it took a long time. Like I said, it's been four years since we kind of had the initial idea. And Amy and Joe reached out to Boom Studios on probably the worst weekend you could ever try to pitch a new creative project. It was literally, the, it was March, the middle of March in 2020. And that Monday morning was the morning that the world shut down because of COVID. And so we had a, a rough pitch ready to go. We had an outline ready to go. And I was like, why don't you we just reach out and you know, see what they think and stuff like that. And she's like, well, I'm just going to send them everything. I was like, well, let's just talk and like see what happens. And then she sent that on a Sunday morning, I think. And then Monday morning, I mean, comic books stopped publishing for, what was it, like three months straight? Yeah. So just the worst time in the world to try to get anything going. So I want to say, we got a fantastic email back, a very nice email from Daphne, who was editing the Parenters books, is editing The Return. And just a fantastic person, but just obviously terrible timing. And then I want to say it was almost a year later, around January 2021, they were doing a Kickstarter for like a big hardcover collection thing. Mm-hmm. And I think Amy Joe signed a whole bunch of book plates for that. And it was wildly successful, like made a ton of money. People were super interested in Power Rangers and Power Rangers in comic book form. And so Amy Joe reached out to some of the people at Boom there just to see how things were going now and how it's And it still took a long time, but I want to say September of 2021. So now we're at almost a year and a half. We finally had our first real meeting about the project uh, with Daphna and uh, Hunter Gorenson, who's no longer at Boom. He's doing stuff at Oni. Um, just sort of spitball ideas and formats. And that's where we talked about the four issues and stuff. And even then, it took, that's 2021. I don't think we signed a contract until early 2022. So maybe six months later. And then we were super excited because our names were on a contract with a comic book publisher, which is huge and a dream come true. And even from there, before we started like really writing, writing, it wasn't until like a year later. So even though Amy, Joe, and I had sort of secretly, quietly been working on the scripts off on our own, unsupervised, when it was time to like officially write the book, it wasn't until February of 2023 this year. So that's three years from the first time we reached out to when it was actually time to write and we had real realistic deadlines. Um, I know for a long time, because it's sort of a legacy reunion project, we wanted to promote this year because of the 30th anniversary because of certain reasons it could not come out this year. And that's where the anniversary special that you mentioned mm. came into play, where with Daphna, who's a genius editor, really found a way to sort of kill two birds with one stone because we were super excited to celebrate the anniversary and our story because real time is a big part of the return and how they've aged over the last 30 years and what's happened in 30 years since they started in 93 as teenage superheroes. She found a way to make it work for us, knowing that this main series would get pushed until 2024. There's some stuff with Hasbro who have been fantastic and very supportive of the project in general because we're playing in our own alternate universe. Hasbro was a little worried about, well, how do we set it up as an alternate universe? Canon and, and you know, prime timeline, not that Hasbro would ever call it that, is very important to Hasbro to protect that. And, and to branch outside of that is something they're wary of. They don't want any viewers or fans or readers to ever be confused. And so we didn't want to spend the first half of our first issue 
just laying down all this exposition of, of what we really wanted to hit the ground running. And Daphne says, I have an idea is you guys can do a story in the 30th anniversary special. It'll come out this year. It'll set the book in 2023. Um, it'll help with Hasbro of like, we can show the fans what happened in this universe leading up to the, the first issue of our book and also get us something just out there and to announce the project in a really cool, fun, surprising way. So the seven pages that are in the 30th anniversary, are, are those then like kind of their own standalone side story, like meant to get people ready for issue one? Or will those pages show up again in the first few issues? So they won't be in the first issue. Uh, for supporters of the Kickstarter, who, uh, quick side note, thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody, including you that supported the Kickstarter, because I was blown away uh, by the support that we received. And part of that support is one of the stretch goals that they unlocked was the those eight pages will get reprinted. And I think the 30th anniversary special was hard to find for some people. So don't worry about it. That will be there in the book. And it's a great jumping on point for anybody that is looking to collect the single issues starting on February 7th. If you don't see them, it won't confuse you. It, definitely those eight pages really sort of lay the track of this is where the TV show started. And we kind of match some panels exactly to frames from the TV show. And this is where things split off from the main canon mm -hmm. TV show. And from there, the ripple effects to get us to where we are now. If you don't read it and you go into issue on cold, I don't think you'll be lost. Um, and I think for people that aren't Power Rangers fans, that might even be a fun, dare I say, better way to go because I went crazy when the 30th anniversary special came out because it was my first published comic book. I don't want to say how many copies I bought myself because it's very embarrassing. But I was handing them out like candy to everybody I knew. And for some of the people that just, I, it was surprising to see out of the woodwork, all these people I've known for years, all my friends would be like, I love Power Rangers when I was a kid. I was like, really? You never told me that. But the 30th anniversary special, knowing that the audience reading it, we're going to be longtime legacy fans. It is very much for people that are familiar with the original show. And so there's a lot of stuff in there. And what we change and what we tweak is for the original fans. Issue one that starts on February 7th. If you're curious about what Power Rangers look like 30 years later, remember the show from when you were a kid in a vague roundabout way. You don't have to worry about reading those. They pay short stories. Gotcha. And uh, like I did notice just a very fine attention to detail and like almost episode specific references through those eight pages, like down to the sunset shot of the Switzerland announcement for the three teens. So was that coming from like Amy's direct knowledge and experience with the show? Or like, is that just a fun coincidence, like having that same framing and everything from that episode? It's definitely very, very intentional. So thank you for picking up on that. And that's one of those things I said, what those eight pages are really for the fans is that we watched, we watched a bunch of episodes. I'm going to say maybe about 12 to 15. And Amy and Joe, having acted on the show, had really watched almost none because when you're a 22 year old girl and you work six days a week on a TV show, the last thing you want to do on your day off, I'm sure, is watch that TV show. So Amy Joe is very familiar with what happened on Power Rangers because she lived it acting on it for six days a week for years but she never actually sat down and watched the finished thing so we watched a bunch of episodes i went through all the synopses i remember the show very specifically up to i remember lord zed i remember the new zords but i also remember if i remember correctly i went to the movie with my little brother and i didn't know who rocky adam and aisha were so you can sort of tell from what i remember as a kid really early in season two sort of when I never saw the show again. And coincidentally, like with the story that we we're trying to tell here, I mean, we really wanted to celebrate the original, original core team as that lined up well with what Amy Joe really wanted to celebrate with this story. 
So we watch a bunch of stuff from season one, a little bit from season two, but including that sunset thing is, you know, I won't share the story here because I think it's pretty easy, easily look upable online. And it's more of an Amy Joe story to tell, but Amy Joe was making a TV show with five other people who were her friends. And then all of a sudden one day, like at lunch, they were gone. And again, people can look up the story of, of how those actors were unceremoniously dumped from the show. And it's a terrible story. And so it was really, really like Amy and Joe really wanted to lean in. like, let's get this frame from the TV show. And in a perfect world, what would have happened? Those characters and those actors never would have left. And how can we use that as a moment that we would change and turn it, turn into our own? What if different universe? The other thing that really stood out to me was how well condensed the storytelling is in the world building of just like showing a different year each page and showing kind of that mirroring of like how similar events are happening with both the heroes and the villains. Like we got the parallel weddings or we're seeing both of these characters use resources they've almost always had just at an earlier time or using them more effectively. And so that's something I always really appreciate when I can see a comic put a ton of world building in to less than half of the size of a standard size book. So th this is kind of what I ask about when I'm wondering, like, if there's anything you're pulling from directly to find that kind of fast pacing or figuring out how to, like, get on every page as much world building for your story as possible. It's a great question. I don't have a good answer. I think we were really lucky in that. We had that short story. We wrote it over the course of like only a couple of days. Like it came mm -hmm. together really quickly. And I think the only reason, thank you for your kind words about it. The only reason it turned out as well as you may think it did is because we had been secretly writing and writing and writing and writing. And that's one of the benefits of having all these years of sort of false starts and getting ready to put the book out is we were so familiar with, it's only four issues. So it's 88 pages of content. We were so familiar with like, where does our world break off? And what is different about this universe and all that stuff that it was really just a matter of writing it down at that point. Um, something that we did play with, which we don't do in the comic book at all, is voiceover. A lot of it's from Kimberly Hart, or should I call her Emily Phillips, voiceover. Mm -hmm. And that was fun to do too and different. And that helps you narratively sort of jump around a lot as well. But I don't think it would have turned out as, as well as it did if we hadn't have been prepping so hard and already writing the core main issues. Now, I did want to touch a little bit on your TV and film career before we wrap up. So you mentioned that you're usually in the role of uh, assistant director or first assistant director. Uh, what does that usually look like for the set of a TV show or a movie? Sure. And yeah, I should stress too, that it's bugged me a couple of times is some of the things that came out online. They'll be like, you know, Amy Jo Johnson, Power Rangers, Matt Hudson, Titans. I worked on Titans as a first assistant director. There's a couple of things that called me a director or a writer. I have never directed or written any of the TV shows I worked on, which is just to say, I'm such a huge fan of the writers on shows like Titans and the comic book Titans. I don't want it to get confused and I don't want to have credit given to me that is not due. So I have worked as a first assistant director. Essentially what that means is my tongue in cheek answer is a lot of the stuff that people think the director does is what I have to do on set, mm. which is just, it's just a lot of like everything that I can do to make the director have an easier day is a huge part of my job. So in pre-production, it's breaking, taking the script and breaking it down in terms of every single scene gets a breakdown sheet with like the props, the actors, the background performers, the vehicles, the special effects, all those various, various elements. And then working with the department heads to make sure they have access to the director or if it's a TV show, the showrunner, in terms of what does this line in the script really mean? Or what does this thing supposed to look like? Because we have to build it out of nothing that's existed before. So it's just sort of prep, prep, prep and scheduling 
and I make the schedule for the whole episode or the whole movie. And then on the shoot days, I'm the annoying loudmouth that is just sort of shouting out things of what we're doing next and orders and hurry things up, guys. We got to go home so that the director can sit in a chair and just watch the monitor and make sure it looks good and talk to the actors and, and really direct performances on the day. Because that's the only time you really have access to the actors is when it's actually time to perform. So all the other stuff is just me supporting the other department heads so that they can do their jobs and we can all go home on time. The other way to look at it when I say that, you know, my job is what everyone thinks the director's job is, is also I don't do anything. I really just stand there and I do live commentary of the day, almost like a live podcast. Like, all right, guys, we're doing a close-up now. And after this, we're going to do a close-up of that person instead. But I don't have to move any of the heavy gear or remember any lines or figure out how to light something beautifully. So I go through these roller coaster emotions of my job is really important, but also I don't have to do anything. And I have no transferable skills to any other industry. So I hope nobody in the film industry took offense to that. <laughs> Please hire me. Titans being the show that usually catches our eyes uh, as far as your film credits go. I'd love to know if you have any highlights of working on that series or any notable contributions, anything to that effect. Sure. I, Titans is probably the, my favorite job I've ever had just because I'm such a comic book nerd. It was great to live. I lived for a year in Gotham City and I lived for another year in Metropolis. I worked on seasons three and season four. Jumping in, it was great because it's when you make big TV shows and big movies, there's big problems. It's sort of everyone's career in film as you encounter the same issues or problems on every single job just because making movies and TV shows is so hard. And when you get to Titans, a show like Titans, you know, you have all the same problems that every production has. But also today we're going to have a two-hour meeting about crypto's laser eyes. And those are the best meetings <laughs> ever. Like just having meetings about like Freedom Beast's helmet or how how often he's going to be shirtless. And just like the meetings that would normally be so monotonous on a show like Titans are so interesting because you're talking about just like the coolest stuff. The, the fight choreographers and the stunt team are incredible on a show like that. And I wish people could see because, you know, you get an amazing script and like, and then the Titans fight the bad guys. And that's all it is in the script, really. And then the, the fight team goes away and comes up with this amazing thing, which they film, like edited, and the guys are in costumes and stuff, and they're crashing into cardboard boxes. And it looks incredible. And then I'm a jerk, and I come along like, great, that would take me three days to shoot. I've got six hours to shoot it, so make the six-hour version. And then they have to go and make the six-hour version, and no one gets to see how amazing uh, the fight could have been. But that's a big part of my job. Working on Titans was incredible. Season three, we were in the Batcave all the time, which was nuts. And I remember specifically... When we were doing the end of season three, we had second unit running or splinter unit running. And we had some, you get some guys in film that have been doing this for a long time and they're very jaded and they've seen it all. And there was a couple of times where I would see, you know, some older, like maybe middle-aged men, especially, would just walk into that back cave and you just see them turn into a kid again. Either, you know, they're my age and like they're walking through the animated series or the older guys, like they're in the Adam West back cave. There's something about a set like that that sort of turns people into kids and that awe-inspiring world you would enter into when you would read a comic book or see a cool cartoon, but you get to do it live action, and it was super cool. That, that genuinely sounds amazing, and I would love to find my way into a job where I can talk about super pets and their superpowers for my meetings rather than, I don't know, software and client interactions. So uh, I'm glad to hear, like, first assistant director might be a job I should look into someday. Look it up. I, and he hit me up for advice anytime. I'll tell you how to do it. Were there any marks on the show? Like, I know you're not working exactly in the writer's room or like the director's chair, but were there any, any marks that made it to the final product that us, the viewer, might see in the show? 
Oh, it's hard to think about anything specific. We had a great director named Carol, who was the producing director for season three. And I really enjoyed working with her because she's a great director, but not into the comic book stuff at all. Read a bunch of the Titan stuff beforehand. And then every once in a while, I'd whisper in Carol's ear and be like, on the comic books, this and this and this. She'd be like, that's amazing. Thank you so much. We'd be like, nerd. And she would take my advice. So it really helps being armed. I think I was better at my job because of that. Not to give myself credit, to to focus on other people. Um, We had some great props, people that were super into the comic books. I do remember Curran, who played Red Hood, Jason Todd, in season three. We were doing that scene, I want to say it was episode two, where Red Hood, like, it's a warehouse at night, and Red Hood, like, repels down and shoots the mobsters and throws the head on the table. And it's right out of the comic books. And we were doing blocking and rehearsals. And Curran, I don't know where he hit it on his costume, but he pulled out the Under the Red Hood graphic novel. And he pointed to a panel, like, it should look like this. I'm just like, I love you. Anytime you get stuff like <laughs> that. And um, Josh, who played Superboy, if you watch the very last episode of Titans, for just a second, where you learn what the Titans are going to do in the future as they're splitting up, spoiler alert, uh, you see Superman's boots. You see Superman's legs and his cape for just a second. That's all we were allowed to show. But that was Josh, who plays Superboy. That was his idea. I think in the script it said, I'm going to go and meet Superman and take those flying lessons. And Josh was like, can we shoot that? Can we get Superman boots? And like overnight, the costumes department took some boots, painted them red, found a cape. And we put one of our stand-ins in the Superman boots. And the stand-in is a fantastic person who is about the same dimensions as an actor and stands on the set while you're doing the lighting. So when the actors show up, they can just get right into it. And one of our stand-ins got to be Superman that day. And that's an idea that came from the actors. So that's one of those shows where when you have a wealth of really fun source material, by no means just me. Everybody gets involved in it and really gets into it and finds ways to enhance the material because the source material is so cool. So Dude, Where's My Gar? Is, mm. This is the last time I would like to talk about Dude, Where's My Gar? <laughs> the, the joke that is haunting me forever is in season four, when we would do these concept meetings, a lot of times we would get a script and there'd be no title yet. So I just had this running joke of, I would come up with the title, which would normally be very terrible on purpose. And that's what we would call the script until the writers actually came up with the title. And they were very busy. So a title was the least of their worries. Um, one of them that I came up with, and I think it was Jamie's script, and she'll be upset that I'm revealing this, but it was it was Robin Hood, and it was Robin slash Hood. Near the end of season four, Jason, sorry, Tim Drake, goes to Gotham City, meets Red Hood, and finally puts on the Robin suit, and it's incredible. And I said, this episode should be called Robin Hood. And it was for a couple of weeks, and then Jamie came up mm-hmm. with a way better title, and we never got to call it Robin Hood. As the very last episode that we shot is episode seven or eight in season four. We shot out of order, and it's all about Gar, co-written by Jeff Johns, who everybody knows, who's written a ton of great Titans comic amongst many other comic books, and Ryan Potter, who played Beast Boy himself. They co-wrote it together, and it's a very Beast Boy-centric episode, and it's a very DC Universe-loving uh, episode. And... Just like all the other scripts, we had no title. And at the concept meeting, I said to Jeff, hey, Jeff, this is how it works this season. You don't have a title. I come up with a title. And the title is Dude, Where's My Gar? Because Beast Boy is named Gar, and Gar is missing from the rest of the Titans. And Jeff laughed a little too hard, said he loved it. It wasn't going to get better than that. And, and here we are. It's a real title. And, and I, my joke got taken too seriously. And if nothing else, it's a lesson in being careful what I say. No, that... I think that's quite the Titans legacy to have. And I think you should wear that with a badge of honor. (laughs) But I mean, there's another good example of talking about how fun it is to work on something like Titans is that last episode we shot was incredible. It was very bittersweet because we knew that it was the last season of Titans while we were making it. 
So we knew this was it. And it was, it was, it almost felt like the last week of school too. And because it's only, it's pretty much only Ryan Potter, Tegan who plays Raven shows up in a couple scenes and all the other Titans were gone. So it had this weird sort of like end of school, about to graduate summer mm-hmm. feeling. And the director, Eric Dean Seaton, who's incredible, he is like a true, like died in the wool comic book fan and specifically Titans fan. So having a real true fan, as opposed to Carol, who loved my little comic book trivia knowledge, will call me a nerd all the time. Eric was just right in there with us. And if you watch that episode, it's such a love letter to the DC universe as a whole. There's a lot of cool cameos, Stargirl's in there, uh, Freedom Beast is in there. That's one of those times of working on that show. If you love the medium, getting to work with other people who share your love, it's a great chance to nerd out, but make something together collaboratively, which hopefully a lot of other people like to too. So now that you finally had a chance to do this dream job of yours and write a comic book, uh, I'd like to know if there's currently... I'm going to very gauchely interrupt you to tell another story about how cool I am. Yes, please do. Just because I remembered, I was listening, I was thinking all the cameos. Doom Patrol, at the very end of that episode, uh, Doom Patrol shows up. So it's the first ever, we think, live action Beast Boy meeting Cyborg, who everyone knows in the comic books. Those guys are friends. There's a waffles thing, which I didn't know about, which came from Jeff Johns, I think. In the script, it cuts to a very infamous clip of the animated Teen Titans Go mm-hmm. series where there was a waffles scene where they're singing about waffles. So we're shooting the Doom Patrol scene at like one in the morning on a Saturday. And we've got Cyborg and we've got Beast Boy. And it's the first time we've ever met. And uh, I'm terrible because I forget the name of the actor who played Cyborg. He was wonderful. They came up like from Doom Patrol from Atlanta. And it's the only time I ever worked with him. And I started furiously texting my second AD, Ray, who was upstairs in the, in the studio. I was like, I need waffles right now. And I was like, why? What's wrong? I'm like, Ray, just get me waffles right now. And he called me in between shots. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, Ray, just shut up. I need waffles. He's like, it's one in the morning. Where am I going to get waffles? 20 minutes later, Ray shows up with a paper plate with waffles. Very confused. And I went to the actor who played Cyborg. And I said, listen, I know you've never met me before. My name is Matt. Here's some waffles. In the next take, could you just, when you walk into the room, can you just take a big bite of the waffle? And he said, uh, okay. And he gave me a really weird look. And then he looked at uh, his makeup artist who was working on his um, his prosthetic appliance, his metal piece of his face. And he gave him a look like, who the hell was that? And then we go in and we roll sound and we call action. And he walks in and doesn't do the waffles thing. And I was just like, oh God, I, I freaked this poor young man out. So I don't bring up the waffles again because, like, I don't. He's an actor. I've never met him before. How dare I ask him to bring waffles out? He doesn't. That is super weird. Totally inappropriate. The next take, he comes in and he does eat the waffles. And I think it's the only time in all of Titans that there is a post-credits clip. And I think that was Jeff because Jeff Johns was laughing so hard at the monitors is that he took that waffles clip and he put it in at the end of the episode where Cyborg comes in and he eats a waffle. I love that. Wow, that's deep cuts there. Deep cuts, yes. Now, the VFX team also said at the very end in the season finale, the series finale, they were going to put a CGI waffle flying through the portal. I've never seen it. If anyone can freeze frame it and find me a CGI waffle, go for it, but be warned it might not be there. So now you've made this jump from working on comic book TV shows to finally doing the dream of writing a comic book. Going forward from here after uh, the return is released, I'm curious if you have anything lined up as far as future comics projects or if you think you'll pursue that moreover than future TV projects or where you're currently at. Uh, I would love to keep this going. I mean, for the last six months because of the strikes, I haven't been on a set in a while and I'm definitely going back to TV and film because I love it so much. So I'm going back to set 
this has been literally a dream come true. Uh, it's incredible. And I, and I do know how lucky I am because, I mean, we've all heard of what Nepo babies this year, and I'm a Nepo boyfriend. Mm. I know this opportunity wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Amy Joe, but I think we told a good story. So in terms of future projects, I absolutely have stuff I would love to do. I would work on anything. I definitely don't have anything I could officially talk about at this point. And in terms of specifically Power Rangers, well, let's put it this way. With Power Rangers, that Kickstarter was incredible. The support was amazing. And uh, Philip, uh, one of the VPs at Boom, sent us an email saying, so many of the thousands of people that supported the project have never supported a comic book project before or a Boom project before. So we're reaching a lot of new people, which, as we talked about a few minutes ago, is really important to the comic book industry. So the financial support is there. The fans are excited. The artwork is incredible. So really, all of the pressure and onus is on Amy, Joe, and me to write a good story. And if everyone reads it and likes it, then it would be crazy not to do more in this universe. And without spoiling anything, which I've been very careful not to do, when issue four comes out, and well, hold on, I'm just going to really quickly look at this note from Daphne about issue four, just to make sure I'm not lying. Okay, no notes on that. The very last panel of the return, I think you will know exactly what we would do if we wanted to do a sequel. The last panel is very much a mic drop of not the end, but hopefully to be continued. All right. I'm glad to know that we've got potential from here when the story delivers. Mm -hmm. Now, before I wrap up, I like to ask one kind of guest tailored question of the week. And for you, knowing you've been following comics forever and now working on Power Rangers and working in comics. I'd like to know if Boom Studios came back to you and asked you to write the next Power Rangers crossover book. What? Ninja Turtles. No. Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles. You don't have to finish that. Ninja <laughs> Turtles. Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles. Ryan Parrott's two volumes of Ninja Turtles meets the Power Rangers with uh, Dan Moore on art is mm-hmm. incredible and I love it. And the first volume is just like yeah, I've never thought about merging the Power Rangers and the Ninja Turtles together, and they fit so well, tonally and everything. And then when they did a sequel, I'm like, how could you possibly do a sequel? We've seen everything. And no, we have not seen everything. So having worked on Power Rangers, hopefully I've done a good job. Having loved Ninja Turtles, again, I know your listeners can't see all of this original Ninja Turtle comic book art on my walls. That would be a dream project. And what a, what a natural transition mm. for a young budding writer like me to tackle. I want to make this soft pitch because I know it's something that can't happen because the Power Rangers movie rights are in some kind of weird Disney Fox limbo. But I think the one thing I would like to see from those two interacting again, we've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. Then we've got the villain from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Ivan Ooze. Writes itself from there. You just mix the two. You are a genius, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't think of that first. I've never uh, seen anyone pitch that, and I just came up with it earlier this year. I'm like, ah, dang, I need to find some fan fiction writers. You should. So and it would have to be fan fiction because I know the answer to that is, unfortunately, it is impossible because of the movie rights. We we mentioned Ivan News or even, um, it was never Ivan News, although just wondering if that person, that character was available. It was, it was like, there's a pig named Mordon. Yeah, yeah. And, right, right. And it's Mordon's only in the movie. And when we were just, well, we're in our own universe. We can bring in Mordon. It's just a random pig there from the movie. That movie, that movie is crazy. But it is Fox owns the original characters that appeared in only the movie. Mm. And so those don't fall under the Hasbro rights of what can be in the comic books, unfortunately. You know, weird thing, but I feel like with your eye on the industry, maybe you could confirm this. 
I've had the theory that that Mordaunt character, like the reason he's there in the movie is because he kind of has elements of all the other monsters that were in Power Rangers, like in the palace, like Babu, Squat, Finster. Like he's kind of got the monocle look. He's a little pudgy monster and some wisecracking jokes. So I was wondering if like my theory is he's a budget saving technique. So they only have to design one new monster rather than make better film versions of three or four other monsters. Well, you know what? I mean, I would defer that question to Amy Joe because she is someone who firsthand experienced the budget issues <laughs> on Power Rangers. But I feel like you are probably onto something else. Mm, gotcha. So you mentioned we're wrapping up soon, but I don't want to wrap up with we've been talking so much about my comic book or our comic book. But just before we hopped on, I saw on your Twitter that you have something coming out. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. And Please. Actually, Amy got a quick look at it when I saw her at uh, Des Moines Con. She was really impressed All with right. the colors and artwork. But um, I'm working on a comic called When We Transform that I'm hoping launches uh, through Kickstarter in February or March of this year. Uh, it's kind of a take on just the tokusatsu genre. Of course, Power Rangers is heavily at the forefront. But yeah, it's something that me and my original podcast and co-host have been working on for over two years now together it's kind of the thing that made me learn how to write comics and i've slowly just kind of expanded this like okay how do i pitch this whole world i have into six pages and then some pretty big personal developments happen like okay i've always known i wanted queer and trans characters in this and i kind of want to have some of those themes in this first issue it just like kind of set the tone of what i want to do with the series and just do like one big emotional like here's the pitch issue zero and then hopefully continue it via webtoon and other online comic avenues just so it's a more accessible comic congratulations when does the kickstarter launch uh i'm aiming for a february or march launch depending on a few logistics of uh what i can line up there's something i want to do that i've only recently discovered this like art technology exists so i've not seen another company do it but i'll bury the lead here um do you know how uh, Radiant Black had like blacklight issues a couple times so far that are reactive to a little light? Well, when I went to the Electric Forest Music Festival last year, I found this company called Calorimetry Lights. And imagine black lights, but like a more transformative version of them. Like they give you this little light changing flashing device that like will just flash different colors, different modes, like it'll strobe things or slowly change and these black light pictures will like totally transform or like you'll see different images in the background kind of get more dynamic in the foreground. And that's something I want to play with specifically like in covers and transformation sequences for our heroes. And specifically because the main premise of like our central character is, uh, okay, what if you have someone that's like a Power Ranger? who tries to transform while they're already transformed or just something goes wrong and wherever it is, they go when they transform or like when they do it's morphin time, but you know what the serial numbers rubbed off, they get stuck there for 30 years and they come out in a world that doesn't have uh, his team anymore. The light patrol, these other characters that are reminiscent of other toku and anime properties like common writer and evangelion have kind of filled the void and, uh, just seeing a world like what happens when you have this team that's defending the world from galactic threats and then they're gone and other people have to pick up the slack and just like finding out the harsh truths of like 
why did all these years of aliens use this monster of the week formula and just explore all the weird tropes of not just Power Rangers, but almost every series that's been done here. And yeah, that's all starting with the transformation sequence. Incredible. I can't wait to see it. Be loud on the internet when that Kickstarter is out. It's, I was very annoying. I apologize to everybody. I'd never even been on social media. And Amy Joe forced me to go on Twitter. Uh, and it's a very scary place. I'm mm-hmm. just getting used to it. But I was very loud about our Kickstarter. And people are out there and they want to support it. And there's so much noise out there. Be loud because people want to see something like this. It sounds super, super cool. So let us know when it comes out because there's a bunch of us that will want to support that. Thank you so much for the encouragement there. Social media isn't my strong suit. So yeah, just getting that like, yeah, keep pushing it is exactly what I need to hear right now. But as far as you being freshly on social media, uh, do you have any that you would like to plug before I close this out here? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Matt underscore underscore Hotson. That's H-O-T-S-O-N. Please follow me because so many of my followers just followed me because Amy Joe told them to. Mm-hmm. It's really affecting my self-esteem. Um, but I'll do my best. We have so much. Like I said, the Kickstarter gave away a lot, which is why I'm so protective of revealing any spoilers on a podcast like this. But there's still so much cool stuff uh, yet to be revealed. Every issue has like a huge thing that nobody knows about yet. I truly think um, what Amy Joe specifically being involved in the Power Rangers project has come up with is really going to blow people's minds literally every single issue. But that said, forget Amy Joe. follow me on Twitter because <laughs> I've got the dirt. Uh, trick me into doing some spoilers there's still so much cool art and amazing covers coming up that i'm a huge fan of and they haven't revealed the name of our letterer or our colorist yet and they're fantastic people follow nico as well nico mm-hmm. Leon's our artist check out all those other people because it's truly such a collaborative thing and boom has been nothing but supportive of everything we've wanted to do uh, so please follow all those people because it's definitely not just me all right you heard it here folks follow nico follow matt do not follow Amy because her ego doesn't need to be any bigger and we need to comfort Matt in this challenging time. But And uh, just to finish things off, Amy Joe texted me because she knew I was doing this. And I said, do you have anything you'd like to say to my fans, Amy Joe?" And she has told all of you listeners not to believe a single word I have said. So there ah. you go. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll just scrap this right here then. No, no worries. <laughs> but for real, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you thank for you. sharing so much and for stoking my ego a bit here before we go. So that's huge for me. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading the book. And I hope to see more from you in the realm of comics in the future. Thanks very much. I hope to see you again soon. If the listeners at home have requests or recommendations for content you'd like us to cover in the future, you can send them our way on social media. You can find us on the Giant Size Violence Facebook page, on Twitter as at Ultramegacast, or email us at giantsizeviolence at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for giving our podcast a chance and give a special shout out to artists Ray Day Parade and Dark Moon Home Video for designing our logo and cover photos. Our intro and outro music is You Are an Ace Kid by Demon Dice from their album Alcatraz. You can check out their new EP, Shut Up, Get Happy, on iTunes and Spotify. We hope you join us again as we continue to explore the world of tokusatsu comics. But until then, take care and remember to do your part in preventing the spread of the kaiju virus. But you're not just a brick in the wall